All right, so this weekend we've been saying that Jesus is never without water. He's never without water. He is always crossing streams. He's dipping into rivers. He's getting in a boat. And it's true. In the same way that 71% of the earth's surface is water, it feels like 71% of the Bible is water. So the first night we looked at the waters of baptism. Then yesterday morning we looked at the waters of discipleship. Last night we looked at the waters of chaos. And this morning we're going to look at the waters of joy. So if you have your Bibles or your virtual Bibles, turn to John chapter 2. So we've been in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and now John. Didn't that work out nice? All right. So John 2, we'll start in verse 1. But first, the story. So my wife, Emily, and I got married in 2016. And our wedding was in Dallas. And we got married in Dallas in 2016. And Matt and Ivy were there. Matt participated in the service. And it was a great wedding. It was, a, it was the best wedding that I've ever been to. Um, and I'm biased, but I really do think it was a great wedding. And, uh, but one night, at, at one point in the night at the wedding reception, everything suddenly went wrong. Here's what happened. Everyone was having a great time. You know, everyone's had their, like, mac and cheese fritters or whatever. And, like, they've had their wine and their cocktail or whatever. And everyone's on the dance floor and everyone's dancing. And if it was y'all, y'all would be shagging. But, like, everyone was swing dancing whatever. And it, having a great time. And then suddenly, the band's power went out. Okay? Like, the music stopped. Everyone stopped dancing and kind of looked around. The, the guitar player's, like, strumming, like, nothing's happening. Like, the singer's talking in the mic, nothing's happening. The power's gone. The music's gone. And what we see in John 2 this morning is this is also a wedding where everything goes wrong. So let's read the passage. John 2, starting in verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. And Jesus said to the servants, Fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana and Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. All right, let's pray. Heavenly Father, once again, we ask you to speak to us. We're tired of listening to ourselves and to the world, and we want you to speak to us. In your son's name, amen. 
So starting in verse, two points this morning. Two points, okay? First of all, the miracle. And second, the bridegroom. The miracle and the bridegroom. So what we see again in this passage is that we're at a wedding. And suddenly, everything at the wedding goes wrong. It says, on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And Jesus' mother was there. Jesus was also there. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. They have no wine. See, weddings in that day were these multi-day experiences or situations, as Matt would say. And it was probably not uncommon to run out of things, right? To run out of food, to run out of dessert, to run out of the mac and cheese fritters or whatever it was. But no one, whether then or now, at a wedding, is ever supposed to run out of wine. For the family, it's embarrassing. Like, couldn't you have just afforded to buy a little bit more? And then for the guests, it's a buzzkill. Maybe we should just all go home. So on the surface, they have no wine is a huge mistake. It's a social faux pas. It's a party poorly planned. But on a deeper level, there's something more going on here. They have no wine. They have no wine. When the Bible, wine is always a symbol of joy. Look back at the Psalms. In Psalm 104, it reads, God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock, plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth, and wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine gladdens the heart. Wine is joy. And so when Mary says they have no more wine, what she is saying is, They have no more joy. They are no longer happy. They are no longer content. They have no wine. And it's true. It's true that by the time Jesus arrives on the scene in Israel, God's people, the nation of Israel, has lost their edge. For one, they've been waiting for hundreds of years on the Messiah. They've been waiting on this man, God's right-hand man, his person in history to arrive on the scene and save them, to save them from the Romans, to save them from everything. But for another, many people in Israel by this time have, been, have become obsessed with rules. They have so many rules. They have hundreds of laws. They have laws about what you can and can't do on the Sabbath. They have laws about who you can and cannot eat with. They have laws about how to be clean and how to make right sacrifices. They're constantly thinking about themselves, wondering, am I doing it right? Yo, this is enough to sap the joy out of anyone. Rules, laws, regulations. And so by the time Jesus arrives at the wedding, it's true. God's people have no more joy. But I wonder if the same is true for us. In 2019, the World Happiness Report published their 2019 edition, and they noticed a trend that is going on worldwide. And that trend is that negative feelings, including worry and sadness and anger, are on the rise. In fact, they are up 21% from 2010 to 2018. So, In just nine years, we have become 27% less happy. And there are all kinds of reasons for this, right? I mean, a lot of people say it's technology. That everyone knows social media makes us more miserable and makes us more depressed. 
and yet we keep going back to it, right? But there's also inequality that, that, that uh, as, as time goes on, the gap between the rich and the poor grows larger and larger, and it seems like some people just get to be happy, and others don't even have a chance. But, you know, a third thing might be that people are just increasingly disillusioned. They're disillusioned with politics. They're disillusioned with their elected officials, their government leaders. People have just let us down. And I wonder if you feel this lack of happiness increasingly on the college campus. Because, as we said last night, college is supposed to be the best four years of your life. And yet beneath that veneer and that surface... There's a lot of darkness and sadness, anxiety, and addiction going on beneath the surface. So Israel has no more wine, but we have no more wine. That's the problem here. Well, the good news at my wedding reception is that after about a 30-minute delay, the power came back on. But Emily and I, at that point, were so afraid that the party was, like, already dead, right? That, like, it it was just too little too late, and then we couldn't get the party really back up and running. But we were very wrong. Because here's what happened in that 30-minute break. During that 30-minute break, it gave everyone just enough time to, like, go get another piece of cake or to go back to the bar. And I'll let you decide where Matt and Ivy went. But after the 30 minutes, the music started back up. We'll edit that out on the podcast. <laughs> they drink very responsibly. Don't hear what I'm not saying. All right. But after the 30 minutes, the music starts back up, and everyone was actually happier than before. And something similar happens here. Look at verse 6. It says, Now there were six purification jars each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Notice two things about these jars. First of all, what they're for, their purpose. But second of all, their size. Their purpose. These jars, they aren't just jars. They're purification jars. See, in Jesus' day, purification was a large part, a big part of what it meant to be a Jew. Because in the Old Testament, in books like Leviticus, God gives Israel all kinds of rules and regulations for how to make sacrifices and how to run the temple and how to get right with God. And many of those rules involved purification. They involved washing your hands, washing your food, washing your clothes. And this was especially important for the priests, right? For those performing the sacrifices, for those entering the temple, entering the holy places. Purification means getting clean before God. And here Jesus takes purification jars and he tells his servants at the party to fill them up. And it says they filled them up to the brim. And then they turned that water the purification water, into wine. And friends, Jesus is telling us something here. And John is telling us something here. John is telling us that the age of purification is over. That all of the hand washing, all of the clothes washing, all of the food washing, it is coming to an end. Because Jesus has fulfilled the law. He has done all the things that need to be done, all the rules that need to be kept in a way we never could. Jesus hasn't just obeyed halfway. He's obeyed all the way. 
In the words of one theologian, Jesus hasn't just fulfilled the Old Testament laws. He has filled them up to the brim. He has filled them up all the way so that you don't have to. The second thing we notice here is the size of the jars. What does it say? Six jars, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. I was an English major at Ole Miss, so I don't do math, okay? But let's do quick math here. Six jars times 20 to 30 gallons means we're talking about a minimum of 120 gallons of wine, a maximum of 180. Either way, it's a lot of wine. And this, too, is significant because it is as if Jesus is saying, I've come into the world to bring a joy, a happiness, a fullness that never runs out. You can drink, you can drink, and you can drink, but you cannot reach the bottom. And the way I'm going to do it, Jesus says, the way I'm going to restore joy to a world that has lost its edge is not by bringing more rules. It's not by bringing water. It's by bringing wine. It's by pouring out my blood. Because, friends, wine is joy, but wine is also blood. And on the cross, Jesus is going to pour out enough blood to cover the sins of the whole world. In the Old Testament, you get clean by water, but in the New Testament, you get clean by blood. In the Old Old Testament, you had to keep washing and keep washing and keep washing, but in the New Testament, you only wash once. You wash once in the fountain of Christ's blood, and then it's over. The Old Testament was fine. The old days were fine. But the days of Jesus are better. Jesus has saved the best wine for last. In the words of the theologian Jeff Myers, water will keep you alive, but it can't bring you peace and shalom. Water can purify, but it can't glorify. All you need to live and survive is water and bread, but wine brings fullness. Water's for survival, but wine is for celebration. He has hushed the law's loud thunder. He has quenched Mount Sinai's flame. He has washed you with wine. Point two, the bridegroom. So it's interesting to notice the setting of Jesus' first miracle, right? Jesus could have performed his first miracle anywhere. He could have performed it at a funeral. He could have performed it at a sporting event, like a track meet. He could have performed it at a political rally. He could have performed it in the temple. But he performs it at a wedding. Recently, I was doing a Bible study on this story with some guys and girls in their mid to late 20s. And one of the girls, as we were studying this story, said, I'm shocked. I'm shocked because I've met so many Christians who seem unhappy. And I've met so many Christians who won't touch touch wine with a 10-foot pole. Like she couldn't believe that Jesus would show up here and that Jesus' first miracle would be this. But if you read the Bible, if you actually read it, it shouldn't be that surprising to us. Because weddings and feasts and wine are everywhere in the Bible. In Isaiah, it says, Heaven 
will be like a feast of rich food and well-aged wine. In the Song of Songs, you have an entire book about an upcoming wedding in which a young man and a young woman are expressing their love for one another in actually very erotic and sensual language. Remember the parables that you looked at last semester. Parable of the lost sheep, parable of the lost coin, parable of the prodigal son, parable of the great banquet. They all end with a party. And then the Bible, the Bible itself, in Revelation, ends with a wedding. And it ends with a feast. Describing heaven, Revelation says, Behold, I saw a new heaven and a new earth and new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven like a bride adorned for her husband. Heaven walking down the aisle to earth. And God says, Blessed are all who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. So heaven is like a wedding. It's like a feast that never ends. It's a feast of rich food. It's a feast of well-aged wine that never runs out. And so now we return to the wedding in John 2. And the question for us in John 2 is who's getting married? Notice the text does not tell us. It simply tells us that Jesus was invited to the wedding. It doesn't tell us the name of the bride or the name of the groom. But the groom does show up later in the passage, right? He shows up after the miracle. When the master of the feast, who is sort of the benefactor or, or, the, or, the, or the host of the wedding, he calls over to the bridegroom. He says, groom, come here to congratulate him on the wine. He says, everyone serves the good wine first. But then when everyone is drunk freely and can't taste it anymore, then you bring out the bad stuff. But you have brought the good stuff out last. Everyone serves the good wine first. You've brought out the good stuff last. And notice the master of the feast thinks the bridegroom brought out the wine. That the party has been saved because of the groom. He wrongly attributes the miracle to the groom. Notice Jesus doesn't correct him. Jesus does not step in and say, actually it was me. Well, why not? For one, Jesus is showing great humility here, right? He's showing that even though he was God himself, he has divine power. He can change water into wine. He's also a person of humility. He's someone who never uses his power as a show or to draw unnecessary attention to himself. He's someone who does gentleness and miracles in secret. And we see that here. We see his humility. But I also think something else is going on. I think that Jesus does not correct the master just to be humble. He also refuses to correct the master because the master of the feast is actually half right. When the master praises the groom for making the wine and says, groom, well done. He actually speaks better than he knows because Jesus is the groom. Jesus is the true groom. Jesus is the one who has brought out the true wine. Jesus is the one truly getting married here. 
Friends, God has not come into the world just to forgive you. He has quite literally come into the world to marry you. And that is true whether you're a guy or a girl. He has come into the world to marry you. It's why one chapter later in John 3, John the Baptist, who we met Friday night, calls Jesus the bridegroom. And it's why in other Gospels, Jesus calls himself the bridegroom. And it's why Jesus says one day there will be no more marriage in heaven because all of us will have a new groom. As the theologian Christopher West says, the message of the Bible could be summarized as God wants to marry us. And that is so intimate that some of you can't handle it. Especially some of the guys in this room. Like, you can't handle that sort of language and intimacy with God. It's too cheesy. It's too much. It's too far. But read the Bible, because it is true. So a few things to consider as we close. First of all, whatever you're facing this morning, and some of you are facing some stuff, whatever you're facing this morning, as a Christian, your best days are ahead of you. Like It's really common in our world to look back. We live in this world of nostalgia. We're always looking back and believing that our best days are behind us. We're always trying to get back to some time in history or some time in our lives. So for conservatives, we're trying to get back to Reagan. For progressives, we're trying to get back to Obama. College students, some of you are trying to get back to high school. When you get out of college, some of you will be trying to get back to college. When you get married, you'll be trying to get back to when you were single and you had free time. And when you're old, you want to get back to when you were young. But as a Christian, your best days are always ahead. The old days was the poor wine. The new days is the good. The best day will actually be the one day. The day that never ends. Heaven. The continual day. When you will sit down with the lamb and feast forever. God saves the best wine for last. And that's true for all of you. If you're in Christ, your best days are ahead. And they won't be here. Second thing, because this is at a wedding, it gives us an opportunity to talk about marriage for a second, okay? And let's be honest. None of you came on this retreat to hear me. Again, as I said the first night, some of you came because there's a cute girl here. And some of you came because there's a cute guy here. And as college students, you know, as you go freshman, sophomore, junior, senior, and out of college, more and more and more, you'll begin to have marriage on the brain. So let's talk about marriage for a second. The first thing you need to, we want to say about marriage is that whenever you get married and have your wedding, you're going to want to make sure that Jesus is there. You're going to want to make sure to invite Jesus. And if you do, he will show up. Which is to say, there cannot be, there can be happiness, there can be happiness in a marriage between two non-Christians or a Christian and, and a non-Christian. You can have happiness, but you cannot have joy. Happiness and joy are different, right? Happiness is circumstantial. It requires good circumstances to be happy, but joy is something different. Tim Keller, 
says joy is spiritual buoyancy. It's spiritual buoyancy. Think about that imagery. Think about a buoy for a second, okay? A buoy. It, it, it floats in the water. It's tossed around by the storms and the chaos of the ocean. It's not immune from the storm. It's not immune from the waves. It's not immune from the rain and the wind. But it never sinks. And the same is true of Christians, and especially those Christian marriages that have Jesus. It doesn't promise you an easy marriage or an easy life, but it does promise you that if Jesus is there, you will not sink. You will be tossed about by the wind and the waves. But if you have Jesus, you can't sink. You can't sink. If Christ is not at your wedding, here's what happens. Your spouse becomes Christ. Your spouse becomes Christ. And you put so much weight on your spouse, and they put so much weight on you, that you just end up crushing one another. Constantly disappointing one another and letting one another down. The wine will run out. But not if Jesus is there. Not if Jesus is at your wedding. Is it a part of your marriage? Okay? Um, the next thing I want to talk about is, just as we think about application, is drinking for a second. Let's talk about drinking. So some of you, again, you're shocked that Jesus' first miracle would be at a wedding and that it would involve wine, and a lot of wine at that. Because you've grown up thinking that wine or alcohol is basically and essentially bad. Okay? Others of you are drinking too much, like you just are. Okay? The Bible is somewhere in between. The Bible says that wine, alcohol, is good. But drunkenness is bad. Wine, alcohol, when drunk at the right age and in the right amount is wonderful. It is a gift from God to you to gladden your heart. But don't drink too much. All right? Fourth thing, final application. And that is, when you go out from this place, you leave this camp and you go back to Spartanburg, I want you to find wine. You need to go and find wine. Notice, our passage takes place on the third day. The third day. In creation, what does God make on the third day? He makes trees. He makes plants. From which come wine. But what also happens on the third day in the Bible? Jesus is raised from the dead. And so the third day in the scriptures is Sunday. It is a day of resurrection. It is a day for wine. And today is Sunday. But if you look around here, there's no wine. Unless some of you snuck some in, and I wouldn't be surprised. There's, I don't think there's any wine here. I'm kidding, I'm kidding. There's no wine here. But next Sunday, you need to go and find wine. You need to go to church. You need to go to church. And at church, Matt, or some other pastor will hold up bread and say, this is Christ's body broken for you. And then they will hold up a cup of wine and say, this is Christ's blood poured out for you, for the cleansing and the washing of all of your sins. And the reason we do that each and every Sunday is because we need wine. We need to remember each and every Sunday that Christ has died for us and he has washed us in his blood. But we also need to be nourished. 
we go throughout life, we, we eat and drink of other things, and we need to be nourished by the right thing. The bread that can actually satisfy, the wine that can actually gladden. So, Christianity is not about memorizing information. And it is not about being a better person and version of yourself. Christianity is about eating and drinking Jesus. That's what it's about. And that's why next Sunday, you have to go and find wine. All right, let's wrap up. So, this weekend, again, I hope you've seen that Jesus is never without water. He's never without water. He's always near the rivers, near the lakes, near water. He is with you in the waters of baptism. He calls you out into the deep to follow him into the waters of discipleship. He leads you into the waters of chaos in order to lead you through the waters of chaos, through his cross. And now here, he lets you drink forever from the waters of joy. Joy, wine, something actually better than water. Water is fine. Wine is better. The Bible starts with water, but it ends with a wedding. It starts with water, it ends with wine. And so as we close this spring conference, as winter dies, we got here on Friday, it was snowing, we leave on Sunday, the sun is shining and the birds are singing. As springtime comes, as the frost thaws out, as the flowers come back, as the ice breaks and the river starts to run again, I want you to hear something, okay? I want you to hear the words of Jesus, the true bridegroom, calling out to you. Calling out to you from the Song of Songs. The Song of Songs, I mentioned it earlier. It's the story of a man and a woman that are about to get married. And this passage I'm about to read, it begins with the woman speaking to her soon-to-be husband. And then her husband, called the Beloved, speaks back to her. And notice what season it is. Here it is, Song of Songs, chapter 2. This is Jesus speaking to you. The voice of my beloved, behold, he comes, Jesus comes, leaping over the mountains, bounding over the hills. My beloved is like a gazelle or a young stag. Behold, there he stands behind our wall, gazing through the windows, looking through the lattice. My beloved speaks and he says to me, arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. For behold, the winter is past, the rain is over and gone, the flowers appear on the earth, the time of singing is come, and the voice of the turtle dove is heard in our land. The fig tree ripens its figs, and the vines are in blossom. They give forth fragrance. Arise, my love, my beautiful one, and come away. Friends, go in peace. The bridegroom has come for you. It is springtime. And the bridegroom will come again. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your beautiful scriptures. That from the beginning to the end, we see this amazing picture of you coming to restore joy to the world and coming to marry us. We pray that more and more, you might knit us to yourself. That we might have life and joy that never runs out. In your son's name, amen.